Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. This is such a weird film. This is a deeply homophobic movie, too. And I don't mean that as just like a, a haha, like a lot of movies from the early 80s or late 80s, early 90s were, were just kind of naturally homophobic. This movie is like, it goes there. I mean, I honestly think this is what happens when it, like a whole bunch of chain smoking Italians decide, who are used to making like giallo slashes and, and like softcore porn, go to Utah and try and make a horror film with Mormons. Like something, something just stops working. I mean, I mean that that string of words. The only logical conclusion to that is uh, troll two. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and logic has logic has no place in today's episode. Ash, logic logic is not here today. Uh, no, if you're here for for logic, uh, a coherent use of the English language, or an understanding of how humans act, um, I, I I don't know what to tell you. Uh, stick around, and you're going to be pretty freaked out by the end of this. Um, we are, hello everybody, hello, uh, we are talking about maybe, in, in the kind of canon of cinema, you know, there are, there are certain films which, which achieve greatness, you know, that become shining examples of the cinematic arts, um, and then there are those which form the inverse of that, and I'm going to leave it to, to you, dear listener, to guess what we're talking about today. Um. <laughs> this is gonna be so much fun yes okay <laughs> yeah i I'm, I'm totally with you yeah D- dear listener i was just adding some notes to our doc and the notes i added are uh i have only been eating uh uh nil bog goo for the last 20 years so at this point i'm thoroughly vegetal uh, aren't we all? Aren't we all just enmeshed in a certain web of life? Um, okay, before we get dragged up too far off the topic, hello, uh, I'm John, otherwise known as Liquid Guy, the co-ghost of this uh, cursed echo, this this message in a digital bottle that we cast out into the waves of podcasting. Joined as ever by my friend and co-ghost of the show, Ash. How are you doing, my friend? Hello, everyone. I am doing great. I'm drinking a uh, industrial dose of tea right now. It's keeping me alive. I am so excited for today. Likewise, because you know what? I'm not going to say anymore. I'm not, I've 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 been excited about this all day. But friends, listeners, gather round, <laughs> gather round the wireless. Bring bring the family and settle into your chairs to listen, as Ash tells us. What Troll Two is really all about, and not to not not to give you any spoiler alerts, but this is Pracy One in this episode. What is the function of memory? Is it merely to catalog the past, to create a dry list of facts and figures that one might find useful in a debate and no further, or could it be something greater? Troll Two is a film about memory. It's how we remember our own past, the deeper past. That, like far-flung seeds from some long-forgotten elm, struggle to grow in a strange soil. This is a sacred memory, 
and, like anything truly holy, we fear it all the more we say we desire to be in its presence. We destroy the magic stone that gives goblins power, because we fear it. It is our doom. Whether we see it or not, we are the goblins of Nilbog. We share in their subjugation, their alienation, their decay, because it is ours. In a time before time, we, your humble ghosts, fell victim to that same hubris. The false belief that we were above the goblins of Nilbog. We have grown since, and, now being more richly fed on the discursive powers of the old magic, see the error in our ways. This is Trolled 2, Part 2, Trolled Liberation. We are, no one is, above the contents of Troll 2. We must meet this film head-on, or we do not meet it at all. Join us as we give Claudio Fragasso's Troll 2 the respect it has always deserved. Yes, indeed. We, we have a great wrong to rectify. Long-time listeners might know that there was a... Uh, a little HV deep cut where we did a troll episode about Troll 2 uh, when neither of us had seen the film, or at least I, I certainly hadn't seen the film. Um, and it is it is high time that we make up for our um, our dismissal. So, <laughs> where shall we begin? Well... I, I think it's imp- Troll 2 is treated as a joke film, and we made a joke episode. But that, I think, it's a stain on an otherwise pretty solid record, if I do say so myself. Um, and we must now render unto Troll 2 what is Troll 2's. Well, um, I don't know about you, but I think it's probably uh, best that we begin by entering the formalism zone. Nope. nope. Nope, we're skipping it entirely this time. Here's a speed run through the formalism zone for Troll 2. Yes, it's the quote-unquote best worst movie. Yes, an Italian director and American actors who couldn't speak with each other made the movie. Yes, all early career and beginner actors who are just not very good at this point in their careers. Yes, it's got a global cult fan base. And yes, there are no trolls in Troll 2, etc. and so forth. This is very fun. It creates for a funny and silly movie. But this stuff has been talked to death. We are going, we are going to move on. We are going to move into Nilbog as we always should have. We are going to sup of the goo. We are going to to receive the Molotov cocktails from the psycho ghosts. <laughs> We're going to do what we should have. You didn't think that we would do what every other film podcast does, which is treat Troll 2 as a, as a joke uh, or, or, or as a meme. We did that once. We are not going to do that again. Let us, let us dive headlong into the arboreal rhizomatic mass of discourse. Where should we start? Our 100% vegetarian discourse begins with uh, the the darkest figure in this movie, truly the force of evil mm-hmm. that drives our plot forward, a, a hideous beast from the infernal realm itself, Grandpa Seth. Uh, yeah, absolutely. This slightly awkward Orson Welles lookalike. Um, is a is an absolute monster. Yes. Uh, uh, so if you haven't seen the movie, which really, so sometimes watching the movie before listening to the episode will give you helpful context. However, in this case, I think actually seeing the movie before listening to the episode will take away helpful context. Mm-hmm. So yes. shrug. 
so uh, our, our setup is that we've got this family and they're going on vacation to a town in Utah called Nilbog. Don't bother reversing the letters in Nilbog. The movie does it for you in just a few minutes. Uh, the little boy of the family, Joshua, is haunted by the ghost of his dead grandfather named Grandpa Seth. Mm-hmm. Throughout the whole movie, Grandpa Seth is trying to get Joshua to commit genocide against the goblins. Um, and I, I think the first thing that that makes me want to talk about is generational discourse, right? Um, you know, if, if you've been online or even like slightly aware of politics for, I don't know, maybe the last 50 years or so, uh, you've probably heard this old hat. Um, like, oh, the, the youth of today are going to save us. They're on the right track. They're going to vote out the Republicans. They're going to be the one to fix the environment. It's the youth who are going to solve this. But Record Scratch, uh, got a little news for you. Uh, that's, the, that's the same song that I heard in my youth and that is now being sung to the, to the Zoomers, rather. Um, and no doubt in time it will be sung to the generation after them. And it's this kind of teleological lie built into this capitalistic view of human generations. And this movie weirdly tackles the subject. Um, throughout the whole movie, Joshua is saying lines like, Grandpa, only you can do something. O- only you. Uh, and Gra- Grandpa Seth is expecting this literal child to fix the world. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when a more holistic approach to this, um, you know, and I, I'm, I am, I'm sure in my heart, uh, we'll bring up Alan Badiou in this conversation. But like a more holistic view of this is like, no, we have to we have to unify our forces, you know, just as we have to see beyond so many other things that are inflicted upon us. We have to see beyond this generational antagonism and realize a common connection. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I think there is this kind of very classic literary tradition, right, of of the ghosts of of older uh, the paterfamilias handing down a kind of curse or, or obligation that has to be carried out which um, is just one of the many ways, one of the many ways that um, that uh, uh, that Troll 2, directed by uh, Cl- uh, Claudio uh, Fragasso, connects to William Shakespeare's Hamlet. Um, <laughs> who, is, who is Grandpa Seth, if not, if not you know, the, the, the true father figure uh, of, um, oh, what's the kid's name? It's Josh, right? Joshua, yeah. Joshua, yeah. Jo- a, bi- 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 a biblical name, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, given this injunction to go out and commit great violence to kind of solve the problem that was completely beyond the now deceased and haunting spectre, um, the, you know, in a, in a sense, this is this is a very kind of classic Shakespearean revenge fable. Uh, truer words were never spoken. You're it completely even, right. It even starts in media res with 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 Seth kind of indoctrinating the child by kind of reciting uh, the oldest form of narrative, which is the fairy story, deliberately uh, fostered as a didactic tool for the inculcation of moral ideology in children uh, to, to, to go out and, and beware of these strange others and to, to uh, see them as a threat. Um, you know, Seth is absolutely a monster. And... And as appropriate to his context as being a true monster, he is 100% actually in hell. Yes, ab- absolutely. This is not a ghost. Uh, this is a specter from the deepest bowels of hell. He is in hell. Uh, it, c- canonically, that is established by the film. One, one, 100,000%. So I think as a setup for this, I, I would like to share one of my favorite moments in the movie. And that's... Uh, so. 
Grandpa Seth magically conjures a Molotov cocktail for little Billy to throw into a building that not only houses the goblins, but also his family, um, is proving Grandpa Seth's commitment to atrocity, um, which I'm sure pleases whatever demon prince has returned him to the living plane. Uh, one, one of the uh, heroic and principled resistance fighters of the goblin community, a preacher, steals the Molotov cocktail away from a child uh, uh, to which Grandpa Seth uh, and then, and the, oh, I forgot. I forgot the the, the turning point. The, the priest looks at Grandpa Seth and says, I'm going to return you to hell with magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, yeah. Let's, let's, let's kind of emphasize that, right? I'm not going to send you hell. I send you to hell. I'm not going to banish you to hell. I'm, uh, I think the exact line is, I will send you back to hell. So this priest recognizes what is in front of him. Nobody else has seen Grandpa Seth except Joshua, the parents and the rest of his family. Uh, keep telling him to get over it and to forget it and to repress the memory of this person. Uh, but the priest can can see him and sends him back to hell. Absolutely. And, and, as, and as Grandpa Seth falls, right, as his soul is, is plummeted back into the abyssal depths from whence he came, uh, uh, Joshua, of course, a frightened child, tur- turns to his grandfather and says, is it true, Grandpa Seth? Are you in hell? Uh, and Grandpa Seth, being a clever agent of the abyss, lies to his grandson and says, no, but I did learn this from a friend who is in hell. Um, and, he, and he refers to it as a holy spell, a holy bit of magic from hell. And he summons forth lightning that blasts the Molotov cocktail, engulfing the goblin preacher in flames. Mm-hmm. And I think it's incredibly telling that Grandpa Seth does not refer to this as some infernal magic from the abyss. It's not a demoniacal spell of darkness. It's holy, and it was learned in hell. This is a complicated theological statement about Satan's inherent relationship as the son of God, right? As one of God's angelic children, right? Just as little Joshua is the son of, or the grandson, rather, of Grandpa Seth, and is being likewise encouraged to participate in atrocity. This is this movie is is theologically unhinged. I, absolutely, absolutely. And of course, holy by the standards of hell is not the same things as holy by the standards of heaven, right? Mm-hmm. So, like uh, uh, this, this re- lends further credence to the idea that Grandpa Seth is in league with the agents of the devil. Um, uh, Again, I I would read an entire book on the theology of Troll Two. I know that somewhere in the world there is a devoutly Catholic student of Italian giallo horror <laughs> who is going to write that book, and it's going to be amazing. And, and, and truly, that is. I mean, like they they would possibly have to co-author this with with a, a deeply devout Mormon from Utah who is also <laughs> a student of like American schlock cinema. <laughs> But I do believe I do believe we have one last thing to say about Grandpa Seth, and you have a take so dark, fitting only to a soul condemned to eternal suffering in the pit. Um, yeah, and it, it, this is something that came to me in all seriousness. This is a very this is a very fun movie, but there was a there's a kind of like semantic coding to this which I found very dark. So you have a a vulnerable young child uh, who keeps calling for his grandpa. The grandpa reads him stories at night. Uh, he's haunted by that memory or hallucination of it. The rest of the family keep telling him to forget it. The grandpa is dead, is never coming back. 
uh, and Grandpa is in hell. Now I <laughs> now now I don't I like I'm not I I don't want to kind of try and be too explicit here, but like there is there is coding there is kind of like textual coding here of something kind of deeply dark just underneath the surface of the of the benign bourgeois demis- domesticity of the family home. And I, and I wanted to ask you if you think do you think that's kind of like a reach? Do you think I'm I'm sort of pulling this out of nowhere? So so when you first suggested that there might be something a bit more nefarious going on between Grandpa Seth's insistence uh, of of being an evil force in Joshua's life, let's let's say it that way. Um, at first, I was a little I was a little puzzled, but then the one thing that stands out to me is that everyone in the family has their backs turned to the memory of Grandpa Seth. It's never it's never like oh Joshua, our our little boy who has lost his grandfather, let us console him in his pain. It, it's always Joshua, harden your heart to this man, hear not the voice of his specter. And, and that, that to me, 100% backs up your, your reading of Grandpa Seth's character. I mean, like, like I say, you know, one of the first things that Joshua's mother says is like, forget him. Like, you have to you stop thinking about him. You know, he's gone. He's never coming back. Uh, and again, I'm not, I'm, you know, not trying to not trying to be not trying to treat that gl- glibly in any sense of the word. Um but I think it. I think there is there is there is uh, definitely when you join up the dots, right? There is, and you start to realize uh, the true nature of of Seth's character and how he is presented throughout the film. You get something kind of really unsettling. Yeah, I mean, one, this is one hundred percent like the setup for a Conjuring movie. You know, the way they're treating Grandpa Seth is the way you treat an invading presence, not not the beloved ghost of your lost grandfather. Yeah, totally, totally. So, uh, you know that that that, and and this was what occurred to me when I was rewatching the film today, just before we started recording. Um, and it it kind of ties into it's like it it sort of feels like the relationship sort of feels like something out of an Edgar Allan Poe narrative, right? This idea of mm-hmm. like the family member from the past being almost resurrected from the grave to kind of terrify the young vulnerable child. That represents the future, um, and and this is a very classic gothic movie in lots of ways, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like we've already established some prominent collections, to, connections rather to kind of, uh, you know, I think referring to Hamlet as proto gothic might be a little too early. Uh, that's 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 pretty far back for referring to it as proto gothic, but like in the face of a better word, proto proto gothic, um, it one hundred percent fits into this mold, right? Troll 2, as as a text, as a discursive piece that is attempting to communicate something to you, the audience member, is concerned first and foremost with the the progression of the past into the present, right? The, the very movement of time and, and the things that get displaced in time. You know, the, the trolls literally bring a, a piece of Stonehenge with them to Utah. You know, like, like the, it is this weird you know anechoic past where where like these these symbolic items are just tossed around so what do, what do you think about the the gothic past we're working with here there's a couple of really interesting things about what you've said right so the the gothic is in many ways a fantasy about history a dislocated kind of a- antiquarianism 
it like mm-hmm. you know if you don't 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 believe that you just need to look up uh strawberry hill um the the, <laughs> the home of hell yeah of horace walpole right which is like this antiquarian uh fantasy that's constructed out of the relics of the past um and this is something that the gothic has always done right walpole says that the castle of otranto is an attempt to mesh the two kinds of romance the ancient chivalric romance with the contemporary realist form of writing that was emerging in the late uh 1700s in england uh this idea of like uh settling in uh, this this film being set in utah and drawing uh, which is like devoutly mormon which is a a, a a religion founded on its journey to utah to salt lake city um and this idea of pulling history out of the very depths of like english history uh using a stone from stonehenge like this is like this is like classic gothic antiquarianism oh you're you're 100 correct about that and i think like the, this this movie ties itself into the the kind of principled core pillars of of the gothic you know we have in and so and so like there's a lot of anti-catholic sentiment in gothic literature it's 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 one of the the hallmarks of the early gothic right and if not fully anti-catholic there's a lot of conversations about catholicism and protestantism and, and things like that the the goblin the goblins have the old religion you know they're they're clung to these to these ways that seem threatening and invasive and outdated and they're being fought by kind of this new age, vaguely detached American spiritualism. So we, we see here like the the historical echo of this anti-Catholic dialogue going on. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And so we so we have ghosts. We have a, uh, a, a I mean, we start with a fantasy. We start with a fairy story coming out of deep history. We have this antiquarianism. We are in we are in kind of classic Gothic territory. This movie rules. <laughs> do you do you have any uh, further points for our troll to gothic studies section? Uh, no, 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 no. I think that that covers pretty much all of it. But I feel like I feel like we could do a whole we could do a whole hour on that. <laughs> it it could be the entire. There's there's so much to think about in terms of how this movie appropriates the gothic as a storytelling mode it's just so fascinating but one thing i do want to touch on is a camper van full of teenagers i think you know like like maybe 13 year old boys it's really confusing about how old these characters are supposed to be yeah it's not made very clear right it's not made very clear at all but like 15 maybe 15 oh give or take so we have we have like a camper van with like four teenage boys in it, and they're like they're on a vacation to find chicks somehow, somewhere in the middle of Utah in a forest. I don't really know what their game plan is here. Uh, yeah, it, it, it just, fifteen year old heterosexual uh, males are not known for their advanced planning. True, true, yeah, yeah, it, it, it very much like they're they're one hundred percent stock representations of this kind of heteronormative teenage teenage boy you know um but one of them like uh in in, in a sequence that i just find this sequence in and of itself is just so incredibly interesting he's his friends are watching tv and they're content to keep watching tv and he's frustrated that they won't go out looking for ladies so he pulls out a cigarette goes to light it stops says i'm going out to get some fresh air and then lights the cigarette outside which that for some reason like there's this like 
haunting dissonance in that sequence. So this kind of like modernist sense of defeat in that moment. You know, we have like we have like a fourteen year old boy, you know, a, a, a lighting a cigarette, going like, "Ah, oh, fuck you all." I'm going outside. You know, it's just, it's just so like, there's something about that. It's just so crushing. But he goes outside, immediately sees like a woman whose clothes are torn to shreds running through the wood because of course um, she's being hunted by goblins. And he, he, he catches her, uh, essentially assaults her um, by way of saving her in the most like p- patriarchal chauvinist way of doing so. But then all these fucking goblins appear, and they're, and they're not like camouflaged. There's they're not magic hiding them. They're just they're just goblins all around him. And he walks up to the goblins, and he's like, "Yo, uh, you better get the fuck out of here, you goblins, or whatever." And like he's like, "No, this he doesn't even it doesn't even register for him that this is weird." It's like he, um, he sees this every day. I I was I was gonna bring up this. I was gonna bring this up later, but maybe maybe it's now is the right time to do this instead, right? Because I think you've hit upon something really, really important, which it comes across specifically in the character of these 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 teenage these these horny teenage boys, um, which is that they have a kind of like depressive hedonia. Mm-hmm. Everyone, everyone, everyone talks shit about their acting, and yes, it would be very easy to go they're just not very good at acting. But actually, I think it's much more discursively interesting if you take the film seriously on its own terms and yeah. go actually. What what we're seeing here is precisely this, right? The exhaustion of this endless, unsatisfiable drive towards uh, hedonic pleasure, right? That they that's all they can do, and it's depressing them. Um, so, like their acting style, which is like completely affectless, like there is no real like emotions seem very distant to all of specifically all of those teenage boys. Um, Made infamously famous by the 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 famous GIF of you know of um, Arnold's line, they're eating her, they're gonna eat me. Oh my god! And it's like, <laughs> oh my it's... god! <laughs> Can we put the audio in? Can we put the audio? Yes. Of just yes. Of just of just that line in. Oh my god! And it's like yeah. It's like someone who is trying to be in a horror movie, right? It's not someone who's in a horror movie. It's someone who's trying to... Like, this is a character that can't... None of these male characters can seemingly feel anything. So, like, no wonder they don't seem shocked or they don't seem kind of, like, outraged because all they can kind of conceptualize is this sort of endless drive towards the opposite sex. What, what do you think? I, I think I think you absolutely hit on to to a key defining element of of this movie, right? Like these 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 teenage boys absolutely live in in this a emotional hedonia. You know, yeah. we, we we see this especially with Arnold's character because Arnold is he's arguably one of the characters we see suffer the most in this movie, and he's never very expressive. In fact, his emotion his emotional landscape is cut off from him. Yeah, totally. He is he is unable to to feel, and that is that is a absolutely defining characteristic of the contemporary, you know, cisgendered heterosexual male experience. Right, you're locked off from your entire emotional world, barring anger and and lust and similar emotions. Right, but like 
pain, anguish, loss, defeat, happiness, camaraderie, like all of these other sensations are just stripped from him. He's unable to appreciate just dudes being dudes, hanging out in the van, watching TV with his buds, because that interferes with this patriarchal social programming, right? It interferes yeah. with this drive. And it, and it speaks to something we're going to get to in just a bit here, but the latent homophobia in this film. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely, right? The the kind of, like, absolute repulsion of the possibility of, like, homosociality. Oh, yeah. Because any any sort of homosocial relationship, it doesn't have to be the classic Yves Kosofsky-Sedgwick triangle, but any sort mm-hmm. of... It is, is rendered kind of, like, dangerous because it's too close to the homosexual. And we, here, let's... Are you ready? Are you ready to to step into the uh, vegetarian vampire zone? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go. And oh, what's that? That's you're hearing the. There's a second Pracy klaxon going right now. Map, map, map. Is it? Isn't <laughs> that you, don't, exciting? Don't, don't use that. Actually, put in some sound effects. There should absolutely be a klaxon happening right now whilst I'm talking. But cut I know, out what, my what are the odds? We're gonna get two Pracys. <laughs> Oh no, so, the second pricey. I know, it's, it strikes twice. I was just so moved by this movie. I was actually taking notes on the vegetarian vampire thing and I, it was just like evolving and oh, it became its own. But here we go. Let's, let's jump right on into the madness. The reason this movie exists, the lone reason is that screenwriter and wife of director Claudio Fergasso, Rosella Drudy, really hated vegetarians. A few years before this movie comes out, a lot of Drudy's friends started going veg, and that apparently pissed her off so much that her mind snapped, and she wrote Troll 2 as an anti-vegetarian film. The goblins in this movie are, to quote her words, vegetarian vampires. They turn people into plant goo and then eat them. Let's, Let's have some fun with this. We can first explore how this clearly fails and serves right-leaning goals. It's obviously reactionary in the most literal sense. It rests its anti-vegetarian discourse inside of homophobia. Nilbog is a town made up almost entirely of men. There are no lady goblins, save for Credence, who is more of a high priestess than a sexual partner to them. As is common for reactionary politics, they are situated in an inverse intersectionality. The anti-liberation rhetoric that comes with a pro-capitalist approach to animal consumption necessarily must also weave itself into homophobia. This connection forms an even greater web. The goblins are from the quote-unquote old world. They are part of an echoing diaspora of colonialism. This anti-animal rhetoric is not just homophobic, but also colonial as well. This, in turn, leads us to something deeper. We can mobilize a viable critique of vegetarianism and veganism as consumerist approaches to political agency. The worst strange of strains of vegan politics are embodied in something that amounts to nothing greater than a personal purity project and voting with your dollar. This, at its worst, actively reifies the subjugation over queer people, people of color, and indigenous communities. We actively see this in the sermon given by the goblin preacher. His focus is entirely on the perceived vileness of meat and entirely removed from the material production of that meat. His vision of a vegetarian politic is just as exploitative as a meat-only diet. This isn't to create a false equivalence, but to highlight the way forward as an intersectional political ideology and not an increasingly divisive and individualized politic. 
Troll 2 has a decidedly reactionary approach to the critique of vegan politics, but we can use this faulty premise to formulate a proper, principled, and fully realized critiques from the left, or from within the left, towards the left. So thank you, Judy, for failing so beautifully. I mean, this this film is basically my new vegetarian friends annoy me for 90 minutes. That's, that's what this is. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Well, this is it's it's that, and then like so 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 we um there are female goblins or but sort of right um it's 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 and this is this this creates some gendered complications inside the context of this film right because we we get a line where one one of the boys who is in the camper van uh, decides to hike into town to get some food um he's picked up by the sheriff of Nilbog sheriff freak um who. Is, drives him into town and gives him like a hamburger made out of goo that he just eats apparently uh, on his way into town the boy is like hey do you know where the girls of nilbog like to hang out and the sheriff laughs in his face and is like there's no girls in town and so what we're led to believe is that there are with the exception of credence the the high priestess there are no women in in the town there, there are just male goblins who can shapeshift into human females or human human women and so we have this complicated gender discourse but we also have the coding of the goblins as being like homosexual men right we even have this scene where um the teenage boy walks out of the you know like corner store he walked in to try and find some food and he's immediately surrounded by a bunch of like mustachioed men in cowboy hats straight mm-hmm. yep. out of some bad 70s porno you know, who who are just vaguely menacing, and this entire movie is is linking this this, this animal liberation to queer liberation by by like overriding the the kind of older peoples that would have inhabited Utah with again Europeans just a second time over. It, it reifies this colonialist attitude, like oh, what's what's really the deep lore of Utah? It's Stonehenge, not not the genocide of indigenous people. So, so the movie necessarily links them together. And I think what it shows for us in this sense is that you can't separate these things. You can't unlink them, you know, like, like all, like it's total liberation for a reason. It all comes together or it all comes apart. I mean, this is, this is such a good read and, and brings up so many kind of interesting avenues that we could talk about. And I, it's so telling, isn't it? That a lot of the discussion just goes, did you know? That this was written because the film screenwriter had vegetarian friends who were a bit annoying, and it kind of stops there, right? That's where so much of this discourse. But I love, I love, I, 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 I'm struggling to sort of find the, the the spot at which we kind of begin, because you've just opened this film up in so many interesting ways that so much of the kind of discourse around this film just completely misses, in my opinion. Right, I think um, you're totally correct. I mean, uh, approaching this as a farce, right? Approaching this as nothing more than a formalist failure, a midnight movie, it causes us to not see what is going on here mm-hmm. and how much more interesting we can make it. Yes, completely. And I think it is super important to to think about the ways in which uh, this offers a not a correct critique, but a useful and generative reactionary critique that can be dialectically overcome. Yes, absolutely. And I think, I think the key here 
is that I was thinking about this while I was watching this movie again, and this might be the most far right movie we've talked about on the show. But uh, I mean, it's it, certainly reactionary. Yeah. Yes. 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 That's a much better way to phrase it. But it's that way entirely on accident. And it's also incredibly incompetent when it's trying to be what it is. Mm-hmm. And that I think provides us with it's, it's like, a, it's a fertile soil, right? The, the, this movie, this movie is a failed crop and we can mulch it and till it back into the earth and grow something better out of that soil. So when this movie codes vegetarians as being homosexual, you know, we can say like, that's, that's like, I, so I've been, I've been vegetarian slash vegan for like, oh Jesus, 17 years, give or take mm-hmm. a year maybe. And like, you know, like in, in not so much anymore. Um, there's a lot of this language has fallen out of vogue, but especially in the early days, there was a lot of like, oh, you're a vegetarian. Like, aren't you afraid that that's a little gay? Isn't that going to mess up your testosterone? You know, and now like we have all like the phytoestrogen stuff. So still being vegetarian or vegan, which again is not a consumptive politic, right? It's, it's not a politic of personal purity. It's part of a larger anti-capitalist picture, right? outside of capitalism, you know, the consumption of animals is a completely different conversation. Sorry, like my brain is just like, my my brain is melting down right now. I've achieved meltdown Godzilla levels of take about Troll 2. Uh, So what are your thoughts? Um, I I really like this. I really like where you're going with this. And I I think the connection to uh, identity and particularly a kind of like hormonal anxiety means that this film kind of has a sort of like really interesting resonance in the contemporary discourses around yes the the right wing fear mongering about phytoestrogens and I, I i love i love i love the idea that like oh uh, uh soy is feminizing people as if as if uh uh trans people would not be like just chugging soy milk Instead right. of having to, instead of having to wrestle with uh, a healthcare system that doesn't care about them, um, like, so I, I, I think this is just such an incredible connection, and actually does make the film kind of more cohesive because so many people don't try and really interrogate what it's about. Absolutely, like you need to approach Troll Two on the level of Troll Two. You need to look Troll Two dead in the eyes, and you can't do that when you're lording over it. And when you look this movie That's in the eyes... That's such a good way to put it. That's such a good way to put it. <laughs> Thanks. But like like issues of gender, issues of sexuality, issues of colonialism, issues of our own history and our memory and our relationship to our own past are all alive and well in the text of fucking Troll 2. And, and you can't piss on hospitality, John. And this movie is giving <laughs> us hospitality. <laughs> Oh, what what a great take! <laughs> All right, I need to I need I need to talk about something much more, shall we say, perfect and serene. Do you want to talk about Credence Lenore Gilgold and our appreciation society that we just founded right now? Um. Yes. 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 We should. We should. We should talk about uh, the most amazing character in the entire movie, the uh, sorceress queen of the goblins. I um. I I'm gonna ask you to try and. Keep your feelings. <laughs> keep your feelings un- under control. Um, objective, objective film criticism. Um, and so it seems that what Ash would like is for uh, a sorceress with magical powers to turn him into a tree. 
Uh, and frankly, I think that's very relatable of you. I mean, I, I want nothing more. Uh, but what, well, what do you find? What do you find so interesting about her? What I find really interesting about the character of Credence in the context of this reading is that we can use a lot of the critiques and a lot of the frameworks that we've been invoking, and her character becomes the best vehicle for this. Right? There's a scene where, so the family, the family that's come to Nilbog has a teenage daughter, right? And Credence comes over to their home to bring them a cake to eat. Because the, the trolls, keep, or the goblins rather, keep trying to get them to eat the, the goo that will turn them into trees. Um, haven't we all been there? Am I right? But like, <laughs> but so, so Credence comes over with this cake, sees, sees the teenage daughter and she's like, oh, isn't she provocative, delicious, sensual, using all of these like descriptors that would be at home for both something erotic, but also for like a devil food cake. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Like it's the awkward balance of the two. And what's going on here is, is again, we're seeing uh, this vegetarianism coded with homosexuality. But what we're also seeing is that like this, this homosexuality is also like the vegetarianism inherently and necessarily evil from the perspective of the text of the film. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> right. She's being villainized. And and it's also feeding into like one of the oldest homophobic tropes. Right. Is, is that queer people prey on children. When yeah. I mean, like this, this is just when you look at the statistics, it is dominantly not queer people who be doing that. But like, what we see here is those those tropes solidifying in this other political discourse that to have this kind of pro capitalist approach to animal consumption, you must also necessarily court the these other politics that we've been talking about, right? Like these these reaffirmations of strict gender rules locked inside of a familial construct. This, this this completely heteronormative worldview must also be inscribed by these politics. And the fact that Credence is villainized, it, it, she, she's essentially the movie's lavender villain. Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And again, all of this, all of this coding is, is, is there, right? It's all there within the text. We're not, we're not doing anything other than trying to take the film seriously on its own terms. Yes, and in order to take the film seriously on its own terms, on its own terms, oh my god! So I have a strep infection right now, dear listeners. So again, all of those little mistakes you're hearing, those are the bacteria, completely unrelated to mistakes I might make in other episodes where I'm in good spirits. But in order, in order to to take this film seriously, we need to talk about erotically making out with popcorn. Uh, yes, we do. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. One of the greatest scenes in all of cinema. Uh, so, so the setup is uh, Credence uh, beseeches the gods of the stone, right? The gods of Stonehenge to, to give her back her old powers, which just make her hot and younger looking. Like she loses the gray hair. She loses the bags under her eyes, the rotting teeth. She loses everything that makes her attractive and, and just becomes a younger version of herself. Um, and like... Uh, so and, and again like like to go back to my earlier point like to in order to do the anti uh or the pro-capitalist animal consumption politics that the movie wants to do it also has to invoke misogyny right because here is the leader of the vegetarians a, a woman asking for her true strength and what is given to her it's oh it's just physical beauty 
right? It, it's it's misogyny, right? That has to be reinscribed, right? This movie is an object lesson in intersectional politics. Um, but th- so the first thing, of course, that she does is she goes to seduce one of the boys that was in the camper van, and make out. They make out with a corn cob in between their mouth that proceeds to pop as they make out. <laughs> this does not turn the boy into a tree. This legitimately, like, I, I don't know why this is in the movie or what it does. Because it doesn't, it doesn't, she gets her powers back and this is really the only thing she does with them. Help? Okay. Uh, okay. okay. I'm pulling the discourse, uh, I'm tagging you in. <laughs> okay, so... So, so, um, okay, I'm, I'm sort of unlocking, unlocking, like, the, the, the dark parts of my mind. Um, <laughs> okay, so let, let's, let's think about this symbologically, right? Uh, what, is, what is film if not um, narrative constructed out of visual symbology? Uh, the corn on the cob, uh, at, at, in the context of this kind of, like, sexually charged erotic moment clearly constitutes the external phallus right there is there is a third point in the relationship between the two now uh the nature of desire in lacanian terms is not just desire for the others but uh, desire for the others but desire for the desire of the other right desire has to be projected outwards to meet itself as it were which is localized and focalized literally embodied in this organic vegetable Right, which ties directly back into the, everything that we've been talking about about the goblins themselves, um, and you can read the the corn popping and then this uh, our poor unfortunate friend being drowned in popcorn as in a moment of ejaculation, right? But it is also the culmination of her desires, and her desires are not for the other; her desire is for power. So it is it is an incredibly loaded symbol that's introduced into the discursive map between these two characters right and we could read it on a multiplicity of levels right you can you can tie it back to the things that you've been talking about about how this film uh discourses around uh sex and gender we could talk about this in terms of like uh, a kind of more abstracted lacanianism to do with power and desire uh and of course sometimes corn on the cob is just uh, corn on the cob but not in this case, <laughs> but not in this case. Sometimes, sometimes it's it's used in the bedroom, right? Sometimes there is there is a there is it's it could not be more explicit about what's going on. But there is also this kind of psycho psychoanalytic working through of the nature of desire, um, and and the desire is a kind of like thing that is projected out of the body, right? It's it's there. There is this thing that their desires meet at, which is what causes the explosion, the overflow, the satisfaction of desire. What what do you think? I I, th- I think you're completely correct, and I mean, like, I'm just I'm just envisioning Freud materializing right now in the HV crypt, and and just f- furiously sucking on a corn cob so hard that it begins to turn into popcorn. <laughs> and then, and then he just locks an awkward eye contact with us and says, sometimes the corn cob is just a corn cob. Yeah. But sometimes it's not. <laughs> so sometimes it's extremely not. And I think like, yeah, yes. To, to, to really just drive this point home as hard as I can. Right. Like 
the, the corn cob is clearly a phallic ejaculatory symbol as it's used in this movie. And it's, it's in the mouth of a young man, right? Like it is being passed into his mouth by what is ostensibly the leader of this queer cult of vegetarians, right? It, it speaks to those cultural fears that we have about queer people indoctrinating the youth. Oh, is, it, is this part of the LGBT agenda? So the movie is is feeding on those conservative and right-wing cultural ideas to generate its its comedic and over-the-top villains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, do you know what the, that scene reminded me of? Uh, what? It, it's kind of the, the direct kind of cinematic analog to this, uh, I think. Jesus, just destroy my mind with whatever you're about to say. <laughs> uh it's it's eerily close in in how it can be read uh, as to the giant cocks uh, smothered in peanut butter from Die You Zombie Bastards. Wow, you're so right. I'm really happy that we're tying Die You Zombie Bastards into this, as well that, as that Hamlet. As well as Hamlet. As, as well, well as Shakespeare. Yes. <laughs> I mean, those two are pretty much the same when you think about it. So. So one other thing that we need to talk about when we're talking about uh, uh, the legendary, the iconic, the perfect Credence Leonore Gilgold Appreciation Society. Uh, we need to talk about her as an anti-logic debate bro. And that's, so, so we, 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 have this, we have this sequence, right? Where Arnold has made his way to, to the kind of church where, where Credence leads the cult from. Um, and he, he, Credence is literally turning him into a tree uh, and, and just, just being an evil villain in the most enjoyable way ever and calm down uh, calm down (laughs) sorry sweating over here um no but then arnold arnold proceeds to uh be like oh can't we like surely there must be a logical explanation for what's going on like and what what i find to be compelling about this right is we're in a particular cultural moment right now um and and hopefully we're on the heels of this maybe but we're we're in we're in this moment you know facts are facts are better than your feelings you know, like, how about you debate me? How about we debate about this on my platform? You know, like, we're, we're in this cultural moment where debate and logic and fact are, are being presupposed as the be-all, end-all of engagement, as the way we actually determine and explore the truth and veracity of the world in which we live without any unpacking as to what truth, fact, and debate are, how they're utilized, what their purpose is, what the format of them is to even begin with what the effect of this is, right? These things are not in vacuo, right? Like like debate does not descend from the heavens as as this pure and perfect way of solving things, of coming to the core and the truth of a matter. Debate is merely a game, no different than basketball. It has rules, it's structured for a purpose, it can be played for, for countless of different reasons and under countless different circumstances. The rules can be changed on the fly by the people playing it if they so chose. It is merely a game. And this is not to reduce it, but this is just to say that we need to confront it as a game and not as this kind of holy Greco-Roman Aristotle, <laughs> this holy Greco-Roman thing that has descended to us through time. What, yeah. what are your thoughts? Yes, but I think I think we can kind of see this as different epistemologies colliding with each other. And I would link this back to the kind of depressive hedonia that we talked about earlier. 
Mm-hmm. R- right. This idea that like that that kind of constant drive towards a singular biological goal is inherently a very limiting and constricting mode of knowing and being in the world. And so no wonder it falls back on a seemingly infallible rationality in order to kind of safeguard its own epistemological foundations. So uh, facts don't care about your feelings, but facts are not absolute, right? That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think like what Credence shows us here is the appropriate way to approach these conservative and these right figures who attempt to hijack our, the way we've set up discourse in our society, right? We have, we have a discursive framework in our society that puts extra value on fact, on demonstrability, on, on positivism. And these people have hijacked that, right? They're, they're, they're doing chicanery and word tricks that, that would put the, the greatest charlatan showman of history to shame. And, and what does Credence do? She just saws the dude in half metaphorically of course (laughs) this is a film but like like she says what what do we do we go straight to the root we skip this thing we skip this false debate we 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 ignore the premise that they're trying to get us with credence doesn't sit down and go yes i will go on your youtube channel and debate why i should be allowed to turn you into a tree credence just turns him into a tree uh i i I, I, I'm not sure, but are you saying that we need to uh, basically place uh, botanical curses on anyone who is like a Twitch debate bro? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I learned from Troll 2. Yes. And you can come on Horror Vanguard to get turned into a tree if you want. <laughs> it's one of the many services we offer here on the show. So, speaking of getting turned into a tree, do you want to talk about chlorophyll? Uh, yes. And I, I actually, just as a lead into this segment, do you mind t- telling telling everyone listening what you told me <laughs> about a certain a certain moment in this film? Okay, so there's a moment early early on in the movie where the family is sitting down to eat a meal given to them by the goblins of Nilbog. Um, all of the, the, the goblins food has this like green kind of cake frosting in it. Right. And it's this primordial plant matter, this pure essence of, of the nature that will turn you into a tree if you eat it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you know, this, this family being a bunch of unsuspecting oafs have sit and have sat down and be like, Oh, everything is just the same color green. Well, we're going to keep eating no matter what. Um, and then the, the demoniacal presence of Grandpa Seth uses his hell magic to freeze time for 30 seconds. And, and he says, Joshua, for 30 seconds, you've got 30 seconds to figure out a way to stop them from eating this. I, I can't intervene in the physical world beyond freezing time. So, so uh, uh, Joshua, you know, be, being a child, you know, but what did your child think? Oh, he pisses all over the food. He just hops on the table and just pisses on everything. Uh, hence the movie's iconic line, you can't piss on hospitality. But the second I saw that sign, I was like, oh, John has taken us right back to the piss discourse zone, isn't he? Like, this is, this is one of those piss movies, isn't it? Uh, like, like, like so many of the things that you have subjected me to, like, <laughs> like, like Hubie Halloween, um, 
we have to talk about the piss. <laughs> this is always my fault, isn't it? <laughs> like I, 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 I honestly think that we should, we should, we, in all seriousness, we should talk about that in the context of the wider slime dynamics of this film, right? Um, there is chlorophyll that causes people to sweat and vomit green bile. There is um, uh, lots of people in this film would get very sweaty. So they're kind of glistening and, and, and oily looking. Uh, there is the piss. There is, there is the, 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 um, the white goo that the goblins get, desperately try and get, um, get, get these people to, to, to drink. There is a lot of slime and liquid in this film. And I and and we need to talk about it. <laughs> and my um, my my first take is that this is Lynchian, um, because some some of the slime that the people turn into is cream corn, uh, which which is Garmenbosia, uh, which means that the goblins of Nilbog come from the Black Lodge. Uh, thank you, everyone. <laughs> thank you for listening. You can subscribe on our Patreon for takes that are just as good as that one. <laughs> Uh, I, f- I feel like I I just got a nosebleed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I spent my entire morning praying to this giant stone obelisk asking to return me to my original form, and I think it's working. But it, this is also a kind of classic um, symbolization and utilization of, of the Christavian ab- abject, right? This, oh, yeah. This idea of the interstitial surface of the... Um, of the, the the boundary the kind that violates the singularity of the subject against um, against the kind of like quote unquote dirt or, and and fluid of the world. Um, why? Because it threatens our sense of psychological coherency. Because it is a throwback to our own uh, gestation in the womb. Um, but but the reason that this is important here is 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 super important because it. De- the, the 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 use of the abject here is about destabilizing the idea of a clear and distinct separation between the human and the vegetal right this the line that is enforced by the family and their home with all the modern conveniences as something distinct from nature is something that this liquid seeps through this is it's like this is the, the sweat emerges from the body. The chlorophyll is vomited up out of the mouth, right? Every like, no matter how hard they try and think of themselves as like, uh, oh well, we're city folk, but now we're farmers and we are in we we are the masters of nature. Their own bodies are constantly sort of like betraying them, right? Collapsing the distinction between the biological and the the well the the kind of fundamental distinction between culture and nature itself. Absolutely. And I think this this point is so important in the context of Troll 2. Um, Read Ben Woodward's Slime Dynamics. It's it's one of my favorite books out of of zero. Um, 10 out of 10, highly recommend. But one of the things that is discussed in Slime Dynamics is the idea that slime is both primordial and it is eternal, right? We talked about this on an earlier episode that like the fungal, the, the, the mycological will exceed the human. You, you know, like we, there's nothing we could do to destroy the earth in a way where the fungal wouldn't survive what we had done, you know, because to, to do that would be to destroy ourselves. You know, we're woven into this thing. We, we come from a primordial soup of fungal slime. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we are a, 
an ooze essentially we were a big ooze that has congealed inside of a bag um and that makes us deeply uncomfortable right we we have and, and some of some of this fear is grounded you know we we have fears around bile and vomit and mucus right because those are harbingers of disease some of this is unfounded because we fear things that are simple or similar to those rather but the distinction and the point here is that rather than recognizing like oh like mucus can be a carrier of bacteria so we should manage how our bodies leak all these other forms of slime you know and we should find healthier ways to to be in harmony with the fact that there's no way for us to not leak slime um rather we fear it and then we we have an abject relationship to it we we try to deny it as part of the self right we we drive it back into the shadow and then it manifests as things like troll 2 yeah precisely uh so what we're saying is that that uh julia kristeva and sigmund freud would both really get this film Yes, uh, a, f- a very few people know that there's a, that there's an uncredited co-writer to this film, and it was Carl Jung. Um, uh, yeah, you com- you're you're completely correct, right? The whole point is this endless struggle to define the self against we do it, the self is defined negatively, right? By the negation of by the negation of what it is not, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that is that happens on the very biological level, and yeah, so like. But what we need to understand is, as you've said, is the, the, the slime dynamics of our own subjectivity, our own, um, our own uh, constant becoming, right? The, the idea that the body is not a fixed and stable unity. Um, as, anyone, as anyone with a, with a, with a chronic illness will know, uh, but, but the bodies are almost like we have to reconcile ourselves to ourselves and that happens through these kind of abjected ideas, these abjected mediums, these abjected slimes. Absolutely, 100%. We, we are vehicles for slime. And so much of our existence is, is inherently woven into slime. And slime is a beautiful, good thing. You know, it molds, spores, slimes, and fungi like and even not non-literal slimes like so much of our body is is made wonderful and good by by this incoherent mass of goo and i think that there's something in troll too that is demanding that we confront that head on mm-hmm. you, you know the, the fact that like in so many ways the, the trolls are trying to return the goo to the human condition and and the response that they receive is not our heroes justly fighting for their lives but it's the kind of it's the kind of neurosis that, that appears when you deny the self. All right. So what, what do you think about what this film has to say in regards to friendship and the kind of capitalistic family unit? Well, there's, um, this links back into what we were talking about with how this film is, is engaged in discourses around sex and sexuality. Um, because there's a really revealing moment where... Yes. Um, El- Elliot. Elliot goes to see Holly, and Holly gives him an ultimatum that he has to choose between his friends and her, um, and says, "Oh, since you prefer to hang out with all of those other boys, that must mean that you're gay." Uh, and it's it it's comes out of nowhere, but it it's so bound up within those wider discourses that we talked about earlier. But there is this kind of juxtaposition between. 
friendship and family that is antagonistic. Uh, like the, 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 the family, the nuclear family is this sealed, almost incestuous unit that, that can't admit anything external to it. Like, even when Elliot comes over, he becomes family. He doesn't become something else. He's just simply absorbed, right? The the unit kind of closes ranks. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about this? I think that family is a bad slime. So, like... <laughs> <laughs> no, but so, so, so what, what, what is going on is this movie is juxtaposing two fluid bodies. You, you know, we, we have... We have the slime that is part of us that is attempting to return to us that we deny. And then we have the slime that we have forced ourselves into the mold of that we are not. You know, the, the, the nuclear family as the base unit of society is one of the, the driving mythologies of capitalism, right? Especially neoliberalism, right? There is nothing beyond the, the doors of your family. Everything must be solved and contained within the family unit. Um, and when we talk about family abolition, it's not like you'll never get to talk to your granddad again or some or some conservative wonks spin on family abolition. It's it's recentering society as being a community and not just an unknit. I don't know what uh, analogy go here. Brain shorting, desperately falling. Um, you know, but I think I think what's what's going on here is that we've got we've got these two kinds of slime, right? Mm-hmm. The slime, the slime that is natural to us, right? The slime that we try to deny, but it's trying to force its way back in. And then the family unit acts as this kind of alternative slime, right? The slime mm-hmm. that we've been forced into the mold of. It's absorbing everything. It's coalescing around everything around it. It denies everything that doesn't look like it. It, it is mm-hmm. a much more sterile approach to the actual messy reality of the human condition. Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it's it's very telling that there's this kind of false choice that's enacted here. Um, and it's like, you're, you're completely right. You know, talking about family abolition is not like, but is simply broadening the emotional and affective capacities mm-hmm. of individuals, right? And not locking it into, like, because there is no contradiction, right? There is no contradiction. There's no necessary contradiction between, oh, Elliot can't, and what it results in, that sort of intense, almost claustrophobic internality, is Holly going, well, you can't have your friends and me at the same time. You have to choose one or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, that, and, that's, and that's this absolutely heteronormative approach to the family unit. Is you're, you're exactly right. This hermetically sealed thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like this, this uh, anaerobic rot that has no connection to the outside world. Mm-hmm. Which we, we yeah. we've been we've been dancing around something this entire episode. So let's pow pow pow. Let's get right to the get right to the beating heart, the center, the core. Let's talk about mm-hmm. goblins and not trolls because there are no trolls in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> there 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 are not there are not any trolls. But but by their absence, aren't there trolls? Dun 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 dun. Well, like like. A lot of people go, oh, well, it's just a mistake or it was just done this way so it could, like, ride off the popularity of Troll. But also, like, every absence is a presence, right? There's that, that's the classic mm-hmm. kind of deconstructionist line, which means that perhaps there are trolls, but they just haven't been found yet. Perhaps, you know, because the whole point is, like, uh, it, to establish the idea that, like, 
yeah, maybe you maybe we do live in a world which can contain the mythological. Maybe we can we do live in a world which can contains what we might find to be horrifying or things that we thought were extinct or far away or actually, you know, with inside our house, inside the very food that we eat. So it it, it isn't just like a kind of neat thing to go like, ah, well, maybe there are trolls all along. But to actually go, if you think through that, it should widen how we understand this film's entire epistemology. I think that's that's one of the greatest things I've ever heard. Uh, it's absolutely let's phenomenal. Talk, let's talk about um, let's talk about goblins. <laughs> yes, we're, we are. Just, I'm so. I just really want. I just want to apologize really quickly to our listeners. One for the trolled two episode we did so long ago now that did not do this movie justice, and two. For having to talk about Harry Potter for like four episodes in a row. This is not on purpose. I promise you that. <laughs> so, this movie's got some goblins in it. And goblins have a problematic history in terms of representing Jewish people. Yes, there is there is a long history of um, uh, linking the goblin to anti-Semitic stereotypes. Um Again, uh, to the to the foreigner, to the other, to the outsider, but here and and really, in a way, it's a kind of resurrection of the, those old ideas, like the goblin that will steal your children and eat them, and mm-hmm. they kind of do, but they just add in an ex- extra step, which is yeah. like, yes, we will steal your children and eat them, but first we will make them eat the the, the magic goo that then turns them into a tree. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> So what what do you what are your thoughts on the, the goblin discourse in this film? Well, so I, again, I think I think this ties back into the the core and fundamental failing of of Judy's idea of writing a movie that is simply anti-vegetarianism and nothing more, right? Of of being a, a somewhat comedic lambast, a lancing at at or like this this is this is the tilting at windmills. This is there's a folly here, right? And that folly is, you know, like we, we did this earlier in the episode. We had an absolutely level-headed, principled critique of vegetarianism, right? That if it is simply a consumerist politic, it is nothing, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, ha- it has to be woven intersectionally into class and race and colonialism and, and issues of gender for it to be effective, right? And, and this movie is not effective because it doesn't recognize that, right? It, it's, and so what it winds up doing is like, it just it just reifies hegemonic attitudes, and hegemonic attitudes are unfortunately homophobic, anti-Semitic, transphobic, et cetera, and so forth, right? And so, like, I, I don't think Claudio Fergasso or his wife Judy had any anti-Semitic notions when they made this movie, but it doesn't matter if they did or if they didn't. Because their their yeah. their actions are so uncritical, their creation is so uncritical, it naturally dredges up some of that cultural baggage. Yes, I think that I think that's true. Um, and you know, there's the, the ending of this film, which neatly inverses the old panic about the goblins coming to steal your child, right? Because really, it's the child that discovers the goblins are there to consume the mother. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which. Uh, I really love as an ending. <laughs> and that was so good. So I'm so uh, happy it wasn't a dream either. Uh, but it is when you stop and think about it, very very bleak. <laughs> I think that's just 
I love the ending of this movie. It's 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 really bleak in context of the movie. It's really bleak in context of the kind of politic that Judy was writing from. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, it is pretty damn cool that after all after summoning their grandfather from hell to use to use Satan's most crafted black magics to defeat an old god that predates the Christ child after all of that theological anguish is is worked through in the text of this movie they just fuck it up and lose <laughs> sit down Lars von Trier we've got Claudio Fergasso any final thoughts eat the slime that's my final thought do it. Uh, eat, eat the goo. Eat the goo. Become one with the trees. Merge into the web of life. Reject the, the, the endless struggle of the distinction between nature and culture and become as we are uh, a monstrous slime uh, to be reincorporated into the wider vegetal mass of our <laughs> natural existence. Magnifique. So, so, so good. Fantastic. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the first episode of Horror Vanguard for October. Um, This is going to be quite the spooky season. We have many wonderful surprises, some tricks and treats in store for you. And if you'd like to get those early, please follow us uh, on Twitter. Subscribe to our Patreon. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Darrowvania. John, where can our listeners find you? Uh, I am on most platforms as the Liquid Guy. Um, uh, come and say hi stay slimy everyone we hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse until next week stay spooky